Well, if you have a Bible there with you, I want to invite you to take it and uh, turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 12. Uh, Last Wednesday night, I began a study during our midweek time of of the life of Abraham, and I've entitled this study, uh, Walking by Faith. And really, of all of the great lives who have ever walked across the stage of human history, uh, none were more important than the life of Abraham. Now, maybe not so much in the eyes of the world. Uh, The world may not include Abraham on its list of who's who's. But, at least as far as biblical history, redemptive history is concerned, uh, history as far as God is concerned, uh, no one um, was as important as Abraham. He's a man who illustrates for us what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. And it's important that we keep in mind a few things uh, as we look at his life. And when you think about faith, uh, I've told you that a person's faith really is no better than the object of his or her faith. Our faith is not in faith, um, because if faith is in faith, then really you're just simply saying that your faith is in yourself. So our faith is not in faith. The object of our faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Abraham receives a word from God as God reveals himself to him and places his faith and trust in God and believes the promises of God. So your faith is no better than the object of your faith. And when you think about faith, uh, faith is the conviction that something is true in spite of the evidence that sometimes screams to the contrary. It's the assurance that something is true even when it can't be physically perceived. And so really there's no greater individual in Scripture who can teach us in the school of faith than Abraham. He's upheld in Scripture as the father of faith, and his life serves as a rich example of what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. And really, the life of Abraham teaches us that faith is not so much something that we study as much as it is something that we practice. Our faith doesn't grow through knowledge alone, as far as head knowledge, knowledge of facts, but through obedience. And so Abraham's faith was an obedient faith, and his faith was proven over and over again through the experiences of life. Now, the story of Abraham begins in Genesis chapter 12, where we're first introduced to him as Abram before God changes his name. And if you remember from last week, um, I pointed out to you the context of, of Abram's faith as we're sort of presented with a brief sketch of his life prior to the call of God on his life. Now, we know that he is the father of the Jewish nation. He's a man who's described as being a friend of God. But at the same time, we shouldn't come under this assumption that this was always true of his life. And I pointed out to you some things about Abram's background that you really needed to consider. Uh, We looked at his background as far as a cultural understanding of where he came from. Uh, The Bible says in Genesis chapter 11 that the call of God comes to him when he is in Ur of the Chaldees. And at that particular time, uh, 2,000 years before the birth of Christ, 
Ur of the Chaldees was a very large city. It was an urban center, a cultural center. And, and Abram comes from this city. Uh, his cultural background, uh, his religious background uh, involved idolatry. Um, the people of Mesopotamia and Ur of the Chaldees uh, worshipped a pantheon of gods. They were polytheistic in their religion, in their worship, which meant that they simply worshipped many gods. They worshipped idols. And so God calls Abram from this um, religiously idolatrous background and God reveals to him who he is. He reveals to him his truth. Uh, Socially, we considered a few things about Abram's background. We're introduced to him at the close of Genesis chapter 11. And in the beginning of Genesis chapter 11, you have the whole Tower of Babel episode. And um, in between that episode and the story of Abram, uh, there's a genealogy uh, which basically uh, records the faithfulness of God in fulfilling his promises. And if you go back through the Genesis genealogy, you'll notice there are 10 generations from Noah to Abram. And attention is given in the book of Genesis uh, to Noah's son Shem and his descendants known as the Semitic peoples. And by the time you get to the end of Genesis chapter 11, uh, the biblical narrative has focused on Abram and Abram's wife, Sarai. And verse 30 introduces a problem because the Bible says that the two of them had no children. That means that they were an unlikely pair whom God would use to bring blessing to the world. And God's going to appear to Abram and God is going to tell Abram that he's going to make a nation out of him and he's going to bring blessing to the world through him and through his descendants And at the time, Abram and Sarai didn't even have any kids. And so this shows us that God is sovereign in the way that he calls and the way that he works. And so culturally, Abram's background was humanistic. Religiously, it was pluralistic. Socially, his background was unrealistic. How can God take a man and his wife who were barren and they're on up in years and bring blessing to the world through this couple? And the point that I made to all of that last Wednesday night is that really our background, where you come from, uh, none of that is really an impediment to God as far as his sovereign purpose is concerned. And you can never use your background as an excuse for why God cannot use you. Well, that's the context of Abram's faith. Now, Having understood that, there are a couple of things that I want to show you as we look at Genesis chapter 12 tonight. And um, the first thing that I want you to see with me tonight is the call that Abram receives from the Lord. God calls him as he's there in Ur of the Chaldeans. And notice what the Bible says beginning there in verse number 1 of Genesis chapter 12. The Bible says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, God says, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
And so the call of God comes to Abram as Abram was minding his own business there, uh, living his life in Ur of the Chaldees. And so when you look at the call of God uh, in this passage, uh, notice that it involves a couple of things. Uh, To begin with, it involves a call to forsake all that was comfortable. Verse 1 begins with this call uh, that comes to him by way of revelation. Some translations uh, render it this way. Now the Lord had said to Abram, And the idea is that the call of God came not because Abram was seeking the Lord, but because the Lord was seeking Abram. God had initiated this call in Abram's life. And so that means that it was all of grace. Um, The call of God comes to him as he's living his life. Uh, God calls him out of his idolatry. God calls him out of spiritual darkness. And God calls him to leave all that he had known there in Mesopotamia. God calls him to renounce his idols and to set out from his father's house in obedience. So really it was a call to forsake the old life. It was a call to forsake all that was comfortable to him. Now, someone says, well, how does the call of God uh, come to his life? Well, it's God's word. God, in his grace, appears to Abram and speaks into his life. Again, this is the pattern that we see all throughout Scripture. It's God who initiates the call. And as God's word comes to Abram, that word produces faith in his heart. And that's why the Apostle Paul says what he does in Romans chapter 10 uh, when he says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so Abram now has knowledge of God simply because God takes the initiative to reveal himself to Abram. And so this call involves... um, leaving everything that was comfortable in his life. You go back up to chapter 11, verse 31. You'll notice that the Bible says Abram took, um, or Terah took Abram his son and Lot his grandson, Sarai his daughter-in-law, and all of them went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to the land of Canaan. But then they come to a place called Haran and they settle down there. So the Bible says that God appeared to Abram in Ur of the Chaldeans and issues this call. But verse 31 says they settled down in Haran, which was halfway from where God really wanted him to be all along. And so that means that Abram moved in the general direction of Canaan, but made it no further than Haran. And maybe that's why in Acts chapter 7, the Bible says that it was only after Terah, Abram's father died that God removes Abram from Haran and led him all the way to Canaan. And so the idea is that the death of his father acted as a catalyst in the forward progress of Abram's faith. Now, let me just kind of take a time out here for just a second. Life is full of distractions. What is it that may be distracting you, pulling you away from the call to obedient, surrendered faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. If God has you in his sights, don't be surprised when he begins to strip away all that you hold near and dear, but ultimately distracts you from obedient faith. And so we can often look back on incidents in our lives that served as catalysts to our faith. Things that were painful at the time. 
things that we would not have chosen for ourselves at the time, but things that God used along the way to strengthen our faith and to move us from a place of complacency to a place of surrendered faith. So this call of God uh, involved forsaking all that was comfortable. And then notice another thing here. Notice that it involved following the Lord's leadership. The word of God that comes to Abram um, commands him to turn his back on his comfortable life in Ur of the Chaldees. It forbid him to settle halfway in Haran, and yet it demanded that he follow God's leadership. And in this passage, you'll notice that God promises to lead him to a land that he himself would show Abram. And that simply means that God doesn't give him any of the details up front, but he calls Abram to go nonetheless. Calvin said of this, he said that essentially God called him to go forth with closed eyes. Abram had to renounce everything that he had known, uh, everything that he had held dear, and simply had to trust that God would do as he promised. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8 says that Abram obeyed in faith, not knowing where he was going, but he had to trust God to lead him there. In his, um, in his biography of the life of Abraham, Chuck Swindoll says something that I think is so good. He says, stop and think about the call of Abraham for just a moment. Put yourself in his place. You're roughly 75 years old. You've got a wife. She's in her mid-60s. You've lived in one place your whole life. You've established a homestead in a familiar city with a, com- uh, with a family and community that you've known since birth, and suddenly, out of the blue, God appears to you, tells you to pack everything up and hit the road for an undisclosed location. Now, can you imagine how Abram's conversations perhaps went with his friends and with his family, maybe his neighbors? Now, just use your imagination tonight. Um, Maybe they see him packing everything up and someone comes into his driveway and says, Abram, um, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm packing everything up. I've got to go. He says, where are you going? He says, I don't know. He says, well, how, do you, how will you know when you get there? He says, well, God is going to show me. Well, are you coming back? Abram says, no, I'm not coming back. Uh, that kind of helps you put it in perspective. This is the call of God on his life. He had to pack up and leave everything that was comfortable. He had to exchange uh, the known for the unknown, the comfortable for the uncomfortable, and he had to follow God to lead him where God wanted him to be. Now, the thing is, deep down on the inside of us, there's a desire to want to know all of the details up front before we make any major decision. Uh, Most of us need to see where we're jumping before we agree to make the leap. But God doesn't give Abram any of that information. God simply issues his call, and faith demanded that Abram obey. So this call involved him turning his back on all that was comfortable to him. It involved that he follow the Lord's leadership. And then this call, it also involves faith in a specific promise. And you'll notice the major components of this promise that God gives him. You see this in verses 2 and 3. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3 are some of the most familiar verses in all of the Bible. 
Basically, we see God um, establishing his covenant with Abram. And, and notice what the Lord says there. He says, I will make of you a great nation. You obey my call on your life. And let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. In you, all families of the earth will be blessed. So God is making an unconditional covenant with Abram here. And it's an act of God's grace. And Abram is to believe it by personal faith. And so this covenant that God establishes with Abram, uh, it, has, it has multiple implications. Uh, to begin with, it has personal implications. And you'll notice no less than seven times in verses two and three, God uses personal pronouns when referring to Abram. And, and by the way, look at the language of grace here. God says, I will bless you. I will make you a blessing. I am going to use you for my own purposes. This is very different than the pride of the men at the Tower of Babel just one chapter earlier. Uh, in Genesis chapter 11, uh, man in his pride says, we're going to build a tower. We're going to make a name for ourselves. Well, juxtaposed against that way of life is the way of faith here in chapter 12. God says, I'm going to make a great name for you, Abram. I'm going to bring blessing to the world through you. And so personal implications. God's going to do something in his life that Abram could not do for himself. He would be blessed to be a blessing. And often when we think about the blessing of God on Abram's life, we tend to equate that with material blessing. Now, it's certainly true that Abram was a wealthy man. God did bless him materially, but that's not so much the point. Because the woods are full of evil men who've acquired a name for themselves and heaped up riches unto themselves. So the blessing of God, it's not necessarily just specifically seen in material blessing here. God is going to do something much deeper than that. He's saying, Abram, I'm going to bless you in order for you to be a blessing. And that's kind of backwards to the way that we often think. We often live by this philosophy that says having a blessing is more important than being a blessing. We tend to say, God, would you bless me? I want to be blessed. I want my family to be blessed. But the blessing of God on Abraham involved him being blessed in order to be a blessing to others. And that's totally different than everything that the world around us says. And let me just say this, all of this finds its, ult its ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are a recipient of the gospel blessing, uh, which simply by faith, you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, your sins have been forgiven, you've been saved, you've been entrusted with the gospel, God has blessed you in order to make you a blessing to those around you. That's the blessing of Abraham. So it has personal implications. Uh, it has ethnic, national implications. In this covenant, God says that Abraham is going to be the father of a new nation. Elsewhere, God is going to say that he's going to increase the number of his descendants. Uh, if Abram could look around and, and, and look at the dust of the earth and count it all up by individual grain, 
or if he would look at the night sky and be able to number all of the stars, that's the number of the descendants that he's going to have. The idea is that God is going to bring blessing to the world through Abraham, through Abraham's descendants. And the nation that will come will be the Jewish nation, Israel. And God is going to place Israel there in the land for the purpose of being a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, so that they would be a witness to their neighbors. And ultimately, it would be through Israel that God would send his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world. And in that way, the blessing of Abraham would come to all peoples, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul refers to this in Galatians chapter three, uh, when he says that just as Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him as righteousness. And he says, know then that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all nations of the earth be blessed. That's why Jesus could look around at the religious leaders in John chapter eight and say something like this, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it through the eyes of faith. He saw it and was glad. So the call of God that comes to Abram's life here in these verses. Now, there's a second thing that I want you to consider and it's simply this. Notice the surrender that Abram offers to God. The call that comes from God, that then results in the surrender that Abram offers to the Lord. Notice what the Bible says beginning there in verse number four. So Abram went. And by the way, don't you love that? Just how simple that is? No excuses, no reservations, no hesitation. The Bible just simply says, God calls, Abram goes. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah, and at the time, the Canaanites were in the land. So pay close attention then to the beginning of verse four. Abram went just as the Lord had told him. And when God calls, he responds with obedient faith. He commits to do what God calls him to do. And he responds to the call of God with total surrender. And folks, listen, the essence of obedient faith the essence of faith uh, demands full surrender. And Abram's faith was not the kind that merely gave lip service to God. And there are a lot of people who've convinced themselves somewhere along the way that they've believed when in reality they may have only given God lip service. They've not fully surrendered their life to the Lord Jesus. And the faith that they claim to have has not resulted in obedient action like James describes in the New Testament. 
So Abram's faith was not a say-so kind of faith. It was a faith that resulted in obedient action. Because faith for Abram meant that he couldn't stay where he was and be obedient to God at the same time. There's no such thing as stagnant faith. Either we're progressing or we're regressing in our walk with God as believers. Graham Scroggie was an English preacher who said something that was so good. He said, the callings of God never leave a man where they find him. Because to stay where he is after God has bidden him to move on is itself a backward movement though he take no actual step. That's why there's no such thing as stagnant faith. So the Bible says Abram went in obedience to the Lord. No questions asked. In fact, compare this to, uh, to the call of God that came to Moses in the third chapter of Exodus. You remember when God calls Moses and there's the, the Lord appears to him there in the burning bush and uh, God reveals the nature of his plan and his calling to Moses, but then Moses begins to come up with these excuses why he couldn't go to Egypt and be the instrument that God wanted to use. And, and, and the big issue for Moses was that he was not an eloquent speaker. And so God says, well, who is it that made man's mouth to begin with? And the idea is that the call of God doesn't come because of our eloquence. God's call doesn't come because of our ability. The call was not dependent upon Moses' ability, but rather on God's ability. And God, throughout redemptive history, God has always delighted in taking unlikely instruments and using them for his glory, showcasing his own glory. He does that with Moses. He does that with Abram. He's going to take a man and his wife who are well past their prime. They're going to obey his promise and God's going to bring blessing to the world through their descendants. So Abram's commitment to God here involves total obedience. It involves complete trust. He believes God's promise alone. And then you notice in the text, he takes everything with him when he departs from Haran. He doesn't leave anything behind, which means that there's no contingency plan. There's no plan B on Abram's part. He's taking everything with him because he knows there is no return. He's following the Lord. He's committed. He's surrendered to the call of God on his life. So God's call comes to Abram here in verses 1, 2, and 3. Verses 4, 5, and 6, we see a picture of his surrender there's a third thing that I want you to see, and it's simply this. Notice the fellowship that Abram has with God. God's call comes, he surrenders. As a result, Abram's faith is marked by fellowship with the Lord. Uh, look there at verse number seven. The Bible says, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. And so he builds an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And the Bible says that there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed. He journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So the call of God was for him to leave his father's family, 
to leave the comforts of all that he had ever known, to become a pilgrim, to become a traveler who would never live in a permanent dwelling. Everywhere Abram went from this point forward, he had to wait upon the Lord's direction. He responds to the call of God in obedient faith. And yet, as he comes into the land, there in verse 6, he discovers that the Canaanites were still on the land. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Because listen, God had promised that that land would be given to him, but the Canaanites were still in the land at the time. Folks, the way of faith is not easy. And, and that's the point that we see here. God promised to give him the land, but everywhere Abram looks, the Canaanites are everywhere. And that's why it's significant that verse 7 says that the Lord appears to him and promises to give the land to his offspring. And don't miss the fact that God's promise comes at a time in his life when he could not see how any of this was possible. And neither should you miss the fact that God's promise would not happen overnight. I mean, God said, I'm going to make a nation out of you. I'm going to bless the world through you. But folks, nations aren't made overnight. In his own lifetime, Abram would never fully know the full extent of God's promise to him. He would never see it with his own two eyes. But he believes the promise of God nonetheless, and generations after him are blessed as a result. So what does he do there? Well, he has fellowship with God, because the Bible says that he builds an altar there and he worships. And there's an important lesson to be learned uh, through all of this. One person expressed it this way, the place of communion is always and only in the place of obedience. The place of fellowship with God is only to be found in the place of obedience to God. There is no communion with God, no intimate fellowship to be experienced with God apart from obedience to him. Maybe that's one of the reasons why so many people seem to be living with such a lack of joy in their Christian life. Could it possibly be that for them, uh, Christianity has become all about performance-based religion rather than joyful faith that rejoices in God's grace. And somewhere along the way, if you leave the place of obedience in your Christian experience, then let me tell you what happens. You also leave the place of communion, the place of fellowship. And the most miserable person is the person who knows God but is out of fellowship with God. And often uh, in Scripture, Lot kind of becomes an example of that kind of person. The person who knew the truth, who knew the, the, the one true God, but he's out of fellowship with him. So two important things mentioned in these verses that Abraham possesses. It's his tent and his altar. Uh, the tent that he, that he puts up as he gets there in the land, and then the altar that he builds as he worships God. And all throughout his days, Abram would be content to dwell in this temporary dwelling. He wouldn't build a mansion for himself there in the promised land. His tent would set him apart as a sojourner. And even though the land was promised to he and his descendants, he doesn't put down his stakes too deep. The call of God involved him leaving all that he had ever known to become a pilgrim who would never leave, live in a permanent dwelling of his own. 
And everywhere he would go from this point forward, he would wait upon the Lord's direction. And that's why he would build an altar. So his life is characterized by his tent and his altar. To put it another way, he held lightly the temporary things which he had been entrusted with, but he held tightly to the permanent things that he entrusted to God. He held lightly temporary things like possessions and material things. He held that lightly, but he held tightly to the promises that had been given to him by God. Now, folks, we always get in trouble when we get these reversed in our lives. When we begin to lightly hold on to the promises that we have in Jesus Christ and then tightly hold on to the life that we have and the life that we we see uh, and enjoy as far as this life is concerned, material things. Could it possibly be that in your life, even now, that maybe, maybe God is removing some creature comforts from our lives, all that we've known and all that we've held dear, because he wants to teach us that what we have in Jesus Christ is far more important than anything the world around us can provide. <laughs> The riches that I have in Jesus Christ far surpass any wealth that this world could boast. That's why the writer of Hebrews says that by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, content to dwell in a tent just like Isaac and Jacob would also do, heirs with him of the same promise. And the writer of Hebrews says this, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You see, the thing is, he could live in a makeshift dwelling all of his life because his ultimate hope was not in the things of this world, not in the things that are seen, but in the things which are unseen. And eventually God would give him a home. God would give him a brand new name. But in this way, his life of faith is a picture in many ways of the Christian life. The life of faith. We trust by faith that God has provided for us all that we need in Jesus Christ, both in this life and in the life which is to come. He's going to take care of my needs because he's promised to. That doesn't mean that life in this world is going to be a bed of roses. Neither does it always mean that the will of God is going to be an easy or safe place. But it will be the place where God's blessing resides. And so that means we've got to reject all worldly metrics of success. We refuse to drive our stakes too deep down into the soil of this world. And so when you think about all of this, folks, where would we be today had Abram not committed to simply obey God by faith? Isn't it an amazing thing how this really proves to be such a watershed moment in the history of redemption? Just a simple act of obedience, obedient faith, faith that believes the promise of God. He's not going to see the full implications of his decision here. But listen, it's going to impact generations to come. It'll impact us and those that will come after us. Your grandchildren one day may 
rise up and bless your name when they look back on the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. You ever thought about that? You're blessed to be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing to others, to pass along the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if we were to go back to the 1770s, long about the same time that the the Declaration of Independence was being signed here in America, across the ocean, over in England, there was a young man by the name of James Taylor. Now, I'm not talking about James Taylor, the guitar player, but James Taylor, who lived in England in the 1770s. Uh, he was about to get married. He was a stonemason. That was his, his profession. He had some important things that he had to get done before his wedding. And so he was at work early one morning, and he became deeply troubled in his spirit. Somehow, deep down in his heart, there were words that were coming across his mind, and the words were from Joshua 24. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Over and over again, he kept hearing this back in his mind. He tried to shake, he tried to shake it off, uh, tried to go on about his life. But the thing is, prior to this, a guy by the name of Charles Wesley had come through his town and had been preaching the gospel and had been preaching from this particular passage. And man, God used it to really bring deep conviction to the heart of James Taylor. James Taylor knew that he was at the most important crossroads in his young life up until this point. He was about to get married. So under conviction that day, he knelt down in the straw amongst which he was working, and he came to place his faith and his trust in Jesus Christ. And he went into his wedding with this whole new discovery of what it meant to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You say, well, why are you telling us this? Well, if you were to fast forward three generations from James Taylor, uh, he would have a grandson. And that grandson would set out to take the gospel to mainland China. And his grandson would become the, the founder of the China Inland Mission. His grandson's name was Hudson Taylor, one of the greatest missionaries uh, who has ever lived. Untold millions of people from China who would never have heard the gospel, came to hear the gospel eventually through the China Inland Mission that was founded by Hudson Taylor. And who would have thought that that legacy of faith would have begun with an initial act of obedient faith as a simple country boy in England knelt down in a bunch of straw and committed his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't tell me that your faith doesn't matter. Don't tell me that mom, dad, your faith doesn't matter because it does. The most important thing that you can pass down to your children, it's not material stuff, but it's a legacy of faith. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God says, I'm going to bless you to make you a blessing. And that's what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. You know, many of you have been praying for a time where you would have uninterrupted time in the lives of your children. You've never had more 
time than you have right now because they can't, they can't go to uh, school. They're at home. They can't serve and play sports because they're at home. We can complain about our lot in life right now or we can look at it through the eyes of faith and say, Lord, what is it that you want to do in my life? What is it that you want to do through my life? In faith, how can I look at this situation a little bit differently? Right there where you are, let me invite you to just bow with me as I bring this to a close tonight. You know, God is never in a crisis. He's never in panic mode. We live in an insecure world that's filled with all kinds of fear and all kinds of anxiety. We constantly face this temptation to live on the basis of what we feel, what we see, what we touch, what we taste. But the life of Abraham teaches us that we as believers walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. And that's exactly what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says. Are you walking by faith? Is your trust and all of your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, your one and only hope of salvation? Have you forsaken everything and placed all of your faith and all of your trust in Him? If not, then let me encourage you tonight or whenever you're watching this to trust Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. Lord, thank you for the example of Abraham, the father of faith, a man who was justified not through his works, not through his, his uh, ethnicity, but a man who was justified solely by faith. And Lord, thank you for the rich gospel truth that the righteous live by faith. To be saved means that I've been forgiven. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, it's an obedient faith. It's a surrendered faith. And Lord, we understand tonight that the place of fellowship with you, it's only to be found in the place of obedience to you. So by grace, Lord, I pray that we be humble, broken before you, dependent upon you. So Lord, have your perfect will in our lives. I pray for your people tonight. Lord, as we are a church scattered through all that's going on around us in the world around us, Lord, you are at work. And we bless your name. We worship you. Bring glory and honor to your name. And use us, Lord, to be a blessing through Jesus Christ to those around us. And it's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. Amen.